And finally, if you can track down a Bible, uh, which you should be able to do in the rack around you, and the Bibles that we have here will be on page 982. Page 982. I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so, uh, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past put their hope, who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, we're praying that by your spirit, through that word, you would speak to us. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way with our time, that you would help each and every one of us to hear your voice and respond with obedience and faith. And we pray, Lord, that the things that we talk about here at church would be helpful and inspiring and pleasing to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A quick word about our strategy for the preaching ministry around here. I just want to get ahead of this thing. Uh, so around here, if, you, if, if you've been around for a while, you've maybe noticed this, but what, one of the things that we do is we try to use a category called preaching the whole counsel of God. It comes from Acts chapter 20. Uh, Paul was able to say to a church, I've done that. I've Preach the whole counsel of God. In other words, when he evaluates his ministry, even though it was a short amount of time with these people in Ephesus, he's able to say, look, I, I kind of did a comprehensive way of communicating to you the word of God so that I could say with a clear conscience, you have heard the whole word of God. And, and so I imagine there are a lot of different things that I kind of fill that out with, but I imagine that includes some major concepts about Christianity. I imagine it includes kind of broad uh, swaths of scripture, a lot of different passages that he might go to, but, but he had a, a category that we try to use around here. So we ordinarily will do a couple different things. We'll do some series where we look at various Bible passages, looking at a particular idea, and we just kind of pull in verses from all kinds of different places, and we'll do that. And then you'll notice that a lot of times we kind of go through a book of the Bible, and we try to alternate between Old Testament books and New Testament books, so that way you're being exposed to the whole counsel of God. Now, that's a commitment that we have around here, but that means that we bump into weekends like this one, where we run into a passage, and you look at it, and you go, hmm, if I were selecting a text, I might kind of loop around this one. I might go right past it and just kind of breeze by it. Now, that happens over and over again. It could have happened last week, too. Like Brad was reminding me, I didn't like last week more than, than this week. And, and so anyways, there are a lot of times where because of this commitment, we're going to find ourselves in passages where we're scratching our heads going, okay, what does this really mean? 
And when we look at this idea of husbands and wives from 1 Peter, some of it feels archaic. Uh, some of it might be off-putting to you, especially if you're not a Christian yet and you're looking at this and you're going, really? Is that what Christianity entails when it comes to marriages? So let me um, do the best that I can to try to win you over in this time. And what I want to do is I want to show you the gospel principle that applies to marriages. And then I want to look at that specific application in verses 1 to 7 of how that gospel principle plays out in the, in the uh, marriage relationship there. And then finally, we'll just kind of step back and go, okay, why did God do it this way? What's the underlying purpose here? Well, the gospel principle comes from the earlier passages. So if you look at verse 7, it just starts out like this, wives in the same way. Meaning this is not a one-off idea, it's a continuation of a thought. In the same way as what? You have to look back to find out what he's talking about here. So he's got this idea that's traveling through his letter, and he's saying when it comes to certain things, you would apply it in this way. When it comes to how you deal with the government, it looks like this. When, it, when you think about a, a, a harsh master, it looks like this. And then we come to marriage, and he goes, and it looks like this. In this same way, wives submit to your own husband. So uh, you have to go back to figure it out. Uh, when Ash and I got married 12 years ago now, a part of our wedding ceremony, we decided we wanted to take communion together. And so we kind of arranged the, the ceremony in such a way that for a portion of it, her and I just kind of went off on the side, and we had the elements there, and we just kind of had this private sacred moment where obviously everyone's watching, but we were, we were um, going to take communion together, and we actually went to First Peter. And I remember, you know, we're just, I'm reading it to her and we're just having this little private moment. And I remember a conviction that I had back then that has only grown since then. And the idea is, if we're going to do this, verses 1 to 7, it means that we have to understand this, chapter 2. If we're going to have a healthy marriage, it's probably going to be on account of us understanding and applying the good news of the gospel that we see at the end of chapter 2. Those aren't two different things. They, they correlate. If we're going to have a healthy marriage, then we're going to be drawing on that strength of what Christ has done for us. That's the point that I'm making here. There's a gospel principle that informs how we ought to think about marriage. So in this same way, you go back and you look at what he has been saying. I think it takes us all the way back to verse 11. You are, you have a new identity, so you interface with the world in a different way. As foreigners and exiles, Abstain from evil. That's the natural response when the world is hostile to respond in kind. You abstain from evil and instead you should live beautifully. And in fact, live so beautifully that even though other people might accuse you of doing wrong, upon further observation, when God returns, they actually glorify God. You're doing things differently. I don't understand it, but you're living so beautifully that when God arrives, they would say, you were right and God should be glorified. You are following his leadership. You are a, a member of the people of God. You're drawing from that identity. You're recognizing, I'm a part of God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, his treasured possession. We're also drawing from the fact that Peter reminds us, as a member of that society, being a different kind of person, you're looking forward to the day when he comes again. And so you've got this future hope, this resilient hope, this inexpressible and glorious joy because you have an inheritance that is incorruptible. So when he returns, no matter what the circumstances around you in life are presently, when he returns, he's going to make all things new again. 
He's going to make things right. And so we draw on that, and, and therefore, what do we do? Verse 13, the gospel principle tells us we submit. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. You are a new creation. You have a new identity. You have this new resource and power available to you. Therefore, submit yourselves voluntarily to all authority. It's a wild idea. We struggled with it last week. We thought about it in terms of civil government and what it looks like to obey the emperor, the awful emperor, and the governor sent by the emperor to punish uh, evildoers and to reward those who do right. And then we looked at what that looks like with unworthy masters and how we're to submit to them. And all of this just feels so countercultural and so counterintuitive, but this is the way of the cross. This is the gospel pattern. Verse 21 of chapter 2 reads like this, To this you were called. You're a follower of God. This is what you were called to. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This is the way of the cross. This is the, the calling that we have as followers of Jesus Christ himself. He set an example. He did it himself. He's not asking us to do something he was unwilling to do. He's, he's showing us this is what it looks like. So I have a question. Does it work? Does it work to submit yourself to authorities? Does it work? And if we look at the case study of the Lord himself, uh, what we find is that it, it does in fact work. Think about, think about Jesus. He gets arrested. He gets brought before Pilate, the Roman, you know, the, the, the Roman individual who's got jurisdiction over that area. And Rome is oppressive and they're evil and wicked. And, and so Jesus has an opportunity there. He's the king, the king of kings. He could do something here. But what does he do in that moment? When he's arrested, when he's brought before Pilate, how, how does he behave? What does he do here? Well, he doesn't even engage in that conversation. And instead of saying, look, what you guys are doing is wrong and awful, and I'm right, and I'm going to show you, instead of doing that, what does he do? He just resigns himself to whatever God is up to. He doesn't retaliate here. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't get angry or evil. Pilate says to him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of, but Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Instead of, instead of retaliating in that moment, you've got the wrong guy, I'm innocent, you don't know what you're doing, your whole system is corrupt, he doesn't even engage. John chapter 19 puts it like this, Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize the power I have to either free you or crucify you? And the Lord responds by saying, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. In other words, he's humbly submitting himself to the Father's plan. He has resolutely gone to Jerusalem. He knows what's coming. He's going to the cross. He's got a different agenda. He's not going to get engaged in these you know, conversations about the political environment. He's playing chess when other people are playing checkers. He's, he's aware of what God is calling him to do, and so he is very purposefully doing this. Now, we might misread that and go, maybe he's cowardly. Maybe he's af afraid of what Rome could do, or maybe he's apathetic, or maybe he's indecisive. But what if, what if what he's doing there is displaying true courage? What if what he's doing there is he's actually displaying what it looks like to submit yourself to God? And, in that, and by, by doing that, he's actually accomplishing the Lord's will. So does it work? Does it work for us to take this gospel principle and apply it today? Absolutely. So let's look at it now in, term, in the terms of, of marriage. We'll deal with wives first. It comes first in the text. 
In verse 3, it says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Wives, submit to your husbands, and by doing so, you might have a husband who's not a believer yet. And actually, the commentators pointed that out, of how precarious that would be. If you become a follower of God, and, and you're in that first century arrangement, and you're married, and your husband's not a believer yet, you are incredibly vulnerable. So what do you do? Do you nag him? Do you persuade him? Do you lay down ultimatums of, you have to become what I am, or, or do you say, I'm going to leave you, or what do you do? And he says, no, submit yourself to your husband. Submit yourself to your husbands, and by your behavior, you might actually win your husband over. By your behavior, you could win your husband. Now, there's an old saying, I think it's attributed to Francis Bacon, but it says, um, preach the word, and if necessary, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And that resonates with us. We hear that. We're like, oh yeah, that's, that's clever. That's cool. The problem is it's not actually true to what scripture says. You have to preach the word, right? The Bible tells us over and over again that if somebody comes to faith, it's because they heard the message of Jesus Christ proclaimed. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of truth. In fact, the argument in the book of Romans is how could somebody become a Christian unless they heard the message? And how could they hear the message unless somebody preached to them? And how could somebody preach unless they were sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news of Jesus Christ. So the, the, the biblical idea is you must communicate the gospel. Peter says the same thing in his letter. In chapter 1, he says, You've been born again by the living and enduring word of God. This is the word that was preached to you. Chapter 1, verses 23 and 25. So we need the message and we need to hear that message, and we need to respond with faith to that message. But here's what Peter's saying here. Your behavior ought to match that message. The way that you conduct yourself actually better make that message more and more plausible to your audience. But by the way that you live, you can communicate something of the beauty of that message. You can do something that will actually commend the message to other people. Your husbands may even be won over without words because you have chosen to live in a way that is pleasing to God. So, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if they do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. This is true beauty. Look at verse 2. When they see the purity and the reverence of your lives, when they look on you and they see how attractive it is that you have chosen to follow God, this is this inner reality that's expressing itself in godliness, and people see that and they go, that, that is attractive. That is true beauty. Look at verse 3 and 4. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of an inner self. The beauty that God is after is not just the outward expression of beauty, but rather it's that inner unfading beauty coming from the inside and spilling into the outside as well. He's saying this is true beauty. It's not the, the treatments, it's not the clothes, it's not the gear that you wear. What's really beautiful is an inner self that is committed to God. And this is unfading. Look, look at verse 4. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Beauty is fading. Physical beauty is fading. So I've always been an athlete, and uh, I was looking at photos the other day of when I was in my 20s. And I was like, wow, I was very fit. That'll never happen again. 
right? Like I'm never, I'm not going back there. I can do all kinds of different things, but I'm never going to have the body of a, a fit 20-year-old again. Beauty is fading. And we all know that. A lot of us in here, we, we get that quite well. We're like, yep, the, the most outwardly beautiful days of our lives are in, our, in the past. That's fading. But there is a beauty that is enduring, that doesn't subside, that, that maintains, that actually could improve. And that's the beauty that comes from the inside. That's the beauty that lasts. And, and it's being commended here. It's a gentle and quiet spirit, which, listen, uh, I've been thinking about it a lot this week of how offensive this teaching is. Uh, to some women, you look at this and you go, hold on, core. This is just first century garbage, right? Like this, they did that back then. I'm sure there were reasons for it. We don't do this anymore. Gentle and quiet, that sounds docile. That sounds, you know, subservient to other people. It, sound, it sounds wrong. A gentle and quiet spirit. Like, are you just saying, here's what's attractive, ladies, be quiet, right? Like, how dare you, Cor? How dare you suggest that this is still relevant for us today? But let's think about this. Who else uses that designation of quiet and gentle? Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden. He says, look, here's an invitation. This is a pretty incredible invitation come to me. And here's the reason why. For I am gentle and lowly in spirit. The reason why we move toward him, the reason why we're compelled by that invitation is because he says, this is who I am. And, and we don't, we're not repulsed by that. We're actually compelled by it. And it moves us toward him. And we go, yes, if he's like that, then I can entrust myself to him. Peter is not telling us, God is not telling us to do something that is that is archaic or old-fashioned or wrong. He's actually inviting us to participate in the strength and beauty of the Lord himself. When women do this, it is a, a, a picture, a miniature of what Christ is like. And it's a beautiful thing. It's the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. This is very valuable. It's of great worth in God's sight. This thing has value to God. In contrast to all the other expensive outward adornments, this is the thing that really does hold weight. This is the thing that God estimates as this is worthy. This has value. It's an accounting term. It's just saying if you're comparing these things, the inner beauty, the gentle and quiet spirit is far more valuable. I was getting my hair cut this week and a, another lady was there and she was trying to sell her $400 boots. She had $400 boots. She wanted to offload them on somebody else. She was talking about them. She had spent a lot of money for her feet. And I was thinking to myself, I'm not sure I could tell the difference between a $400 boot and a Target boot, right? Like, I don't know if I would know the difference, but we, we spend all this money on all these things and we think, look, this will make me beautiful. And, and God says, no, you, you have misplaced value. If you think that's the way to obtain beauty, you're mistaken, the actually very valuable thing is this gentle and quiet spirit. And so, you know, husbands, you're welcome. We're going to reduce our budgets now. But um, what it's telling us to do is to, to, to estimate the beauty that is unfading as the truly valuable thing. It's this unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's illustrated now in the Old Testament. Look at verse 5. It says, For this is the way the holy women of the past this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. 
Tom Schreiner says this. He says, the most important feature of that verse is the phrase there that says, they put their hope in God. They're not submitting to their husbands just because their husbands deserve it necessarily. They're not submitting to their husbands because they're fearful of their husbands and what might happen if they don't. They're not submitting to their husbands because they're, they consider themselves to be inferior to their husbands and their husbands to be superior to them. No, the reason why they're doing this is because they are trusting in God. It's an expression of worship. It's an expression of faith and obedience. To follow God's plan is to actually put your hope in God. So the Old Testament holds out this category of holy women who would do this. And then Sarah is held forth as a specific example in verse 6. Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So it holds out a particular individual. You maybe are familiar with her story. Sarah was married to Abraham. God gave Abraham that gospel promise in Genesis chapter 12 uh, that he was going to have a child that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He didn't have a child though, so this was a future promise. And as they were getting older and older, they began to kind of question, how is this going to happen? In fact, it got to a point where, you know, this would be a very geriatric pregnancy. Like I believe, if I, if I can remember correctly, Abraham was 100 years old. Sarai, his wife Sarah, was 90. And so God visits them again and says, look, I've not given up on this promise. It's going to come true. And in fact, it'll happen within the year. And Sarah is, is listening into that conversation. And the thing that's being pointed out here, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Now, the, the part that it's alluding to, the part that's being cited is Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. That's the place where she calls him Lord. Now, what's going on there? The angel's talking to Abraham and saying, you're going to have a child. It's going to be your own child. You and Sarah are going to have a child here. And she laughs. And she says, this is not possible. And she calls Abraham her Lord, but she cannot believe that this is the way it's going to unfold. Here's why this is significant. When, it, when Sarah's held out as the example, it's giving us a time where the husband and the wife are not on the same page. She's still referring to him with that, with that respect with that title of Lord and with that deference, with that honor and all these different things, but they're not, even, they're not even on the same page. Sometimes it's easy to submit if your relationship feels healthy and you're on the same page and you agree, but what happens when you don't see eye to eye? And this is saying you could be Sarah's, a child, a daughter of Sarah, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. You, you can, even if you don't agree with your husband, you can still do these sorts of things by respecting and honoring and submitting. Well, that's a hard and lofty calling that God has given to women, and so I, I understand how challenging these teachings can be. I also know some of your husbands, and I recognize, whew, that's going to be tough. Uh, but the Lord reminds us here of his pattern and his promise here. Husbands, we're up next, and, and it's, it's no easier. So let's look at this now. Four things. Number one, we are to live with understanding. Verse 7 reads like this, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. It's a phrase that means um, according to knowledge. Husbands, live according to knowledge. It means you actually have to be attentive. 
You have to be aware of what's going on. You have to be paying attention to your wife. Now, I don't know if Peter's reading my mail or what's going on here, but he's saying, husbands, it, it is important that as you think about your bride, that you remain committed to paying attention, to being aware of what's going on, to live according to knowledge with her. This is what comedians make fun of, right? When they talk about marriages and they talk about, yeah, if you're newly married, you do all the things. You're aware of everything that's going on. But if you're married for any amount of time, you just kind of give that up. This is reminding us, husbands, no, no, no. If you're going to follow the way that God wants you to live in your marriage, be considerate. Always be learning. Always be paying attention. Always be on the lookout for what your wife is up to and what's going on with her at the deepest of levels. Be considerate as you live with your wife. Secondly, treat them with respect. Verse 7 says, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Okay, okay, core. Here we go again. Weaker. But if you think about women in the Bible, here's how it's presented. Right at the front end, God says, looks at Adam by himself. He goes, that's not good. For Adam to be alone, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, that word helper is a, is a very interesting word. It doesn't mean a servant. It does not mean kind of somebody who comes alongside and just kind of makes things a little bit better. It's a, it's a Hebrew word that actually means a, almost like a rescuer. Like somebody who has such strength and such ability that they can help somebody who's in a lot of trouble. The only other places where that word is used in the Old Testament, three other times, it's used of God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit. So when God says, I'm going to make a helper, he's saying, this is a really good idea. This is not a, this is not a weak individual. This is actually a woman who can come and compliment and rescue men who are left alone. And so this is, this is the picture that the Bible gives. It gives dignity to women. So why does it say here, treat them with respect as the weaker partner? What's meant by that? Well, I think at least a couple things are in view here. One is they're weaker in this sense. They're the weaker partner in this sense. They are socially weaker, both in the first century and today. They do not have the same advantages and privileges as men do. And that was true then in the first century for sure. And it's still true today that women do not have the same advantages. And so husbands need to treat their wives with respect as those who do not have the same privileges. They are socially weaker. So look after them and care for them and do what is best for them because they do not have the same privileges. It's saying respect them. That's a word for precious. They are precious. So you need to honor them. Do not take them for granted. Do not, do not exploit them. Honor them. Treat them as they deserve. They are precious to God. Third, we are to be mindful of their equality. There's, there's not two tiers here in Christianity. It says they are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Co-equal in this sense. They are also participants in Jesus Christ himself. They are co-heirs and co-equals along with you. So they, they have that same privileged status that any of us would have. And so we need to be mindful of that. We're not talking about somebody who is lesser. We're talking about somebody who is a co-equal. So be mindful of their equality. And finally, know, know this, husbands, if you mistreat your wife, it will damage your relationship with God. If you mistreat your wife, you will suffer the consequences of a marred relationship with God himself. Look at verse 7. 
So that do this so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Do this so that nothing will hinder your prayers. If you are inattentive, if you are disrespectful, if, if you belittle your wife, if you are not mindful of the preciousness that she is to you, your relationship with God will suffer. Your, your prayers will be hindered. So husbands, you have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. Love our wives. Serve them. Treat them with dignity, respect, and honor. Well, finally, what's the purpose here? Why does God give us a teaching like this? This reminds us that in every aspect of the human experience, the gospel is to be applied. And it has the power and the dynamic to change who we are, and it has the ability to reveal something of the beauty of Jesus Christ to a watching world. It's a winsome thing. I've been praying this week along these lines. I'm, I'm praying that God would take the, the marriages in our church, and because of our willingness to follow the Lord's leadership in these ways, our marriages would become a picture of the good news of Jesus Christ. The way that we relate to each other within our marriages I'm praying that God would use that as a way to communicate to our communities about God. And I believe that that's a calling that he's given to us as those who are married. He's reminding us that we can win even the unbelievers through the beauty of our behavior. And it, it is something that ultimately, and this is maybe the most important part, it is glorifying to God. We are doing this because we understand that this is what God is calling us to, and we are doing this because of our reverence for him, our awareness of him, we are submitting to one another and loving one another because we recognize this is pleasing to God. So we need help. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking right now that you would help us to have beautiful marriages, marriages that may appear countercultural, counterintuitive, but marriages that are following the patterns that you have given us in Scripture. And Lord, I pray that that would lead to healthy and happy marriages, marriages that are full of joy and love and mutuality and intimacy. Lord, help us to be a church full of marriages that just display your beauty and the way that we relate one to another. Lord, I know that we have an enemy and he hates marriage. We know that there is a hostility toward marriage even within our culture. So, Lord, we're asking that you would give us the resilience to be a people who say, no, we're going to prioritize this because this matters to God. Help us to, to apply that gospel principle to our marriage relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.